All right. Good morning, everybody. If that doesn't get you jazzed up, I don't know what does, right? It may not feel like Olympic uh, weather these days or even high jump weather, but there is something pretty amazing about that, and we'll get to that in a bit. But first, let me just welcome you again and say that we're so glad that you're here, especially those that are visiting for the first time. Know that you are welcomed here, and we pray that you feel uh, welcomed and encouraged uh, in this place today. You, you picked the right service to come to today. We had people kind of hanging from the rafters here. It was so full at our first service. So just turn to your neighbor right now and say, neighbor, great choice. Just to turn to my great choice, just tell them that. You made a great choice. So you can come at 9.15, your seat might just be hanging from the rafters, but we will never apologize for those sorts of problems. Those are always great problems to have, and we will give God praise for growth. Amen? Amen? Praise God for that. So you look at a video like that, and you think, wow, I've never done the high jump before. What in the world is going on? Why are you showing us this video? It's absolutely amazing to me uh, the, the, the athletic ability that world-class athletes have to do something like that. You should know a fun fact. The, the world and Olympic record for the high jump is held by a guy, this guy you see up on the screen, named Ivan Ukov. He's not from Iowa. Um, but that's at 2.38 meters. That's almost eight feet. So that's just running on his own, unassisted, jumping eight feet. So I'm, I'm 6'1", okay? So add another couple on top of me. So does anybody want to try right now and just run up and try to jump over that? Anybody? I'm going to try just really quick. No, I'm just kidding. You know, you wouldn't want to see that. It is absolutely amazing to me. And what's, what's, what I love about the high jump and a lot of other Olympic uh, sports, particularly this one, as opposed to a lot of other sports and activities, is that there is a clear indication of whether you have succeeded or failed. There's not a lot of gray area when it comes to the high jump, when it comes to reaching the top of that bar. Either you knock the bar and it comes tumbling down with you, or you clear it and the crowd goes wild. There is a clear indication of whether you are good enough or not. It is very clear. You get an immediate answer as you're falling to the mat. And as you watch that video and, and look at that picture, and I was thinking about this today with our own bar that I have set up here, wouldn't it be nice if there was something like that in terms of our relationship with God? Wouldn't it be nice if there was a bar, if there was a clear picture, a bar that we could look, and if we clear it, we realize, oh, I'm good enough not just for Olympic standards, but I would be good enough to meet God's standards. The reason I say that is one of the questions that I hear get asked a lot as I meet with some of you or just have coffee or dinner or whatever and, and getting to know people, one of the questions that seems to come up over and over on a regular basis is, like, Pastor John, I, I really want to be a good person, but how do I know if I'm good enough before God? How do I know that God is pleased with me? If Jesus just walk in here this morning and look at you in the eyes this morning and just say, I am so pleased with you. I know you've made mistakes. I know there's things going on in your past and there's, there's things going on in your life right now, but I am just so pleased with you this morning. Wouldn't that change everything? Like just no high jump or anything? But there's something in us that wants to know. Even more so, John, how do I know if I'm a good Christian or a bad Christian? You ever heard people use that language? It just makes me cringe. Because when people say, oh, I, I'm not a very good Christian, they're implying that there's something that, that can be, someone can be a bad Christian, which believe it or not is nowhere in the Bible, but we'll get to that later. How do I know if I'm a good Christian or not if I meet God's standards? So if we have this morning before us a good 
meter to tell if we are enough or not. Everybody say enough. 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 So what do I need to do to reach the top is what we ask. And sometimes because we're human, because we live in a Western culture, an American culture, we love to compare. We love to look around us and compare. And we start playing that game as we sort of look at our standing before God. If this is good enough before God, we kind of look at that, whereas God's the teacher and all of us are graded on a curve. You ever taken a class where the teacher grades on a curve? Just show of hands if you know. Okay, good. So you kind of know what I'm talking about. So in college, I walked in the first day the professor was reading the syllabus. He said, we're going to grade on a curve, which you know, it's not necessarily how good you are by yourself. It's how good you are compared to everybody else. That's how you judge your performance in the class. And you've probably done this. I did this in that one of the classes I had that was graded on a curve. I kind of looked around me and I went, oh, this is going to be a breeze. Right? You kind of look around and you can see I'm totally smarter than they are. They've got nothing on me. Uh, they're freshmen. I'm a senior. I totally got this, right? But then there's those classes, on the other hand, where you look around and you go, oh, no. This is not going to be a good semester, right? Because you look around and you go, they're going to blow me out of the water when it comes to quizzes and tests and all those things. We base our goodness of being enough based on other people. And what we do, whether we realize it or not, is we take that mentality and we stick it right in the church. And we start thinking that way as Christians. And it usually goes one of two ways. And I don't, maybe you've done this on a Sunday morning or you look around at church or you look around at other Christians that you know in your life, and it goes one of two ways. Either we puff ourselves up and we go, oh, I, yeah, I know I haven't done what they have. Um, yeah, I think I've, I'm much better than them. Uh, I'm pretty sure I read my Bible more than they do and much better worship attendance than you. I'm not pointing at anybody in particular. I'm just hypothetically, you know. Or we, and that kind of boosts, boosts us up and our ego, or we do the opposite, which I think is a lot more prevalent because we're Lutherans and Norwegians and we kind of have this aw shucks bashfulness that we kind of go around and say, well, you know, us Christians, we're all just in process. We're all under construction, so I'm sure everybody's better, better than I am. <laughs> I'm just measly old me. And it's kind of this self-degrading mentality we get into sometimes that's disguised as humility. But it's not really humility because you continue to put yourself down. And if you continue to degrade yourself, what does that say about the God who made you? You see what I'm saying? There's a danger on either end. We don't need to puff ourselves up, and we also don't need to put others down or put ourselves down in order to be good enough. And so what we do is not just with friends and family, but we kind of start to look around the world around us, and, we, and whether we say it out loud or not, we have this image in our hearts and our minds of the good enough bar. So we're going to play a little game. It's America's fastest growing game show, and it's called the good enough game, okay? I'm going to hold up the name of a person, and you tell me where they go, okay? So let's see. Let's start with an easy one here. This one got damaged the first service, but the saint herself, right? Mother Teresa, right? Where do you think she should go if this is, you are an absolutely terrible person with no redeemable qualities, and this is, you are pretty much the amazing thing that ever happened next to Jesus. Where would you put Mother Teresa on the good enough bar, Okay. Just tell me up or down. It's like price is right, okay? Up, here? Hi, okay, that's why I got the step stool. I knew you'd get a little crazy on me. So maybe somewhere in here? Higher! <laughs> Higher, right? Here? Here? My word, okay. 
pretty high thoughts of Mother Church. We'll just go there. We got, we got a lot to go, okay? We got we to gotta keep room, okay? Um, let's see. Let's find a good one here. Uh, maybe the exact opposite. How about our good friends? Well, not our good friends, right? I don't, probably don't even need to ask, right? Somewhere down there, right? They're down there, right? Okay, there's still love in the room. All right, um, let's see. How about Mr. Adolf? Where do you think that he would go? Man, you are very judgmental people. The first service was like, boo, kick him out. I'm like, jeez, gee whiz, somebody new. I apologize if you're new today. We don't normally do this and boo people in that. So probably down here somewhere too. We all in agreement? Okay, down. Okay, this is kind of fun. All right, um, so maybe, maybe the opposite. How about, come on, how about our good friend Billy, right? He's got to be high, right? I mean, he saved lots of people. He's done all sorts of good things, right? Big crusade, saved thousands of people. What do you think? Somewhere in here? Lower or higher? Higher. Keep going. Above? Here? No, 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 no. She's Catholic, right? Here? Okay. We can agree on that. Okay. A couple more just to make it hit home, okay? I haven't really looked through these yet. Oh, I don't know how that got in there. Well, we'll deal with that later. Okay. We don't, we don't need to talk about that one. Um, how about this one? And I don't mean me, I mean you. Oh, man, this just got a little harder, doesn't it? It's fun going like this with other people, but how about you? Where would you put it? Oh, now the crowd goes silent. This is really intriguing to watch you do this. Here? In the middle? I mean, we're definitely not as good as them, right? Right? How about right there? Can we kind of agree on that? Okay. We'll deal with pastors later. So um, you kind of look at that and you go, okay, that kind of makes sense. I, you know, that's kind of what we do in our hearts and minds. That's our opinion. Have you ever wondered what God's opinion is of the good enough ometer? Where do you think that God would put all those people? Where do you think Jesus would? Well, if you're not sure, that's why we have our scripture today. If you're not there yet, Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to start at verse 17. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, and we're going to see what God thinks about Paul, this whole being good enough. We are walking through the Sermon on the Mount. We're starting a brand new sermon series today called Get a Way Happier Life. I'd like to take out the way happier and just have the sermon series named Get a Life. That would be fun people would wonder what it's about. But we're talking about the Beatitudes and where Jesus teaches us what true happiness is. And on Ash Wednesday, Pastor Richard was here and he kind of talked about how God has this blessing for us. He has this peace to offer us even when we're down in our luck and things are not the greatest in our life. There's love and joy and peace that God wants to give us. And then it's like here in verse 17, Jesus just unloads. And he just brings out this massively high bar and says, it's way up there. A lot of grace and peace and invitation, and all of a sudden, in verse 17, it's like, boom, challenge. And we pick it up in verse 17. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So why is the law important? We have to understand that when Jesus is speaking this sermon, he's speaking into a Jewish culture and a Jewish context that is steeped in Old Testament law. 
that is steeped in that law. Not just the Ten Commandments that you and I know and that follow them to a T, but over 600 other Old Testament laws that either God gave them throughout the course of history or human-made laws and tradition that they kind of came up with themselves. And so that's who Jesus is talking to, and that, and that these people, they follow these laws so intensely, and those that follow them to a T, that maybe we would say are way up the chain there, were people called Pharisees. And that's why in verse 20, skip down to verse 20, Jesus then says, For I tell you, that unless your righteousness, meaning your goodness, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, that seems kind of like harsh words, but what Jesus is saying is, if you want a picture of the people that keep all the laws, I'm not talking about their heart, I'm just talking about strictly being religious and keeping the laws, Jesus is saying, I'm going to put the Pharisees way up here. Strictly based on do they keep the law or not. They're way up there. So, that doesn't bode well for us because we're down here and I don't, I'm guessing that none of you would put yourself above these two and the Pharisees are above them. Even above rabbis. Jesus puts them way, way up there. Wow, Jesus, that's really tough. I'm not feeling so good about myself now. And Jesus says, we're not done. There's more. Look at verse 21. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago in the old law, you shall not murder. Some of you are thinking, I got it made. Boot me up, Scotty, right? Beam me up way up. I don't murder, right? And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment, yada, 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 verse 22. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And anyone who says to his brother or sister, raka, which is a pretty derogatory term in those days, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. That is the good news for you today. Thank you for listening, and that is the end of my sermon, right? <laughs> I've always wanted to end a sermon like that. This is tough. These are, these are harsh words. Jesus is saying that the bar isn't just about what we do or don't do. Jesus is saying, I'm going to judge you on this bar, also based on what's in your heart and what's in your mind, whether you ever say it or act on it or not. What's going on in here, Jesus says, is just as important, if not more important, than what you act out. Out of the overflow of your heart, a mouth speaks, and you act. So that's what we're up against now. And like, wow, Jesus, that's a bit extreme. And Jesus says, but wait, there's more. Verse 27, skip down to there. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Clearly, I've been waiting all week to deliver you this heartfelt, grace-filled message. There's certain passages in Scripture, if you're like me, that I just really wish Jesus would have never said. Because make things a lot easier. Aren't there some passages in Scripture that you read and you're just like, ooh, that doesn't fit in my Jesus box. Let's just kind of skirt around there and go to for God loves the world. But we can't. Because this is Jesus' inaugural sermon and he's lifting up those things that are most important to him. Following Jesus, well, let me just say this. Salvation, knowing that Jesus is the only way, very clear, very simple. 
learning to be like Jesus and follow him, not so easy. And that's the difference. We can't just ignore these things. He said it. And not only that, he goes on. Jesus says when somebody wrongs you, don't get revenge, forgive them. You know those people that you can't stand? The people that you would call your enemies? That you hate? Jesus says, love them. Don't just put up with them. Love them. Jesus takes the Old Testament high bar for the high jump and just goes whoosh to the ceiling. I'm going to raise you. And if that wasn't enough to bring some conviction and challenge to all of us, skip all the way down to the end of the passage to verse 48. The last thing Jesus says here. It's up on the screen. Let's read those words from Jesus nice and loud together. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. (laughs) Okay, Jesus. You know, the anger stuff was tough. You know, the adultery stuff, okay, kind of convicting, you know. But perfection? Are you kidding me? Jesus, this is just unreasonable. How could anybody achieve that? Well, except this one guy. I saw this picture this week, and I just had to show you this. Go ahead. This guy can. (laughs) Challenge accepted, right? Maybe some of you are thinking that way, right? But we think, you know, I'm doing okay, Jesus, but perfection? God actually sets the bar a little bit higher than 2.33 meters. God says, you know what? The bar isn't just right there. My bar for you is through the roof and through the ceiling, up into the sky and up into the galaxies. You can't reach it on your own. You'll never be able to do it. You can't reach it on your own, which puts all of us in a place of humility. And it's at this point on our spiritual journey that you and I kind of come to a fork in the road. And maybe for some of you, This happened a long time ago, and for some of you, you're still exploring this old Jesus thing, and that's okay. But I think for all of us, there is a certain point in our lives where we come to a fork in the road, and we simply realize that we are not enough. Not just by looking at a funny little example of a bar, but by looking into the darkness of our own heart and realizing there's a person that I want to be. There there are are things that I want to do. There's a way that I want to act. And I can't do it. No matter how hard I try, I can't get there. I have this vision for who God's calling me to be, and I can't get there. I can't be a good enough mom. I can't be a good good enough dad. I can't be a good enough spouse. I can't be a good enough friend. I can't be a good enough Christian. I'm just not enough. Everybody say enough. Enough. And I think that's almost kind of what Jesus says. He says, enough. Because we all come to that point when we realize, oh no, God doesn't grade on a curve. He grades on himself. He is the standard. His son Jesus is the bar, the standard, and he's perfect. And maybe you found yourself at this crossroads, and instead of becoming a legalist and trying to be better and point out everybody else's faults, and instead of going into the other ditch of simply ignoring it and saying, well, if I have to be perfect, that's unattainable, so why even try? We don't go into either of those ditches. We go with the third way. And we come to a point in our lives where we tell Jesus, I can't do it. I just can't do it. And Jesus looks back at you right in the eyes and says, now we're on to something. Now you get it. This is where it starts. 
Faith is not for people that are strong enough. It's for people that are weak and know their need for a Savior. I hear people say all the time, man, I just feel like I'm letting God down. You were never holding him up. He holds you up by his righteous right hand. That's what faith is about. And in fact, for you Lutheran nerds and geeks out there like I am, this is Luther's second use of the law. Martin Luther, the founder of our movement, said there's kind of two main uses of God's law. One is to kind of be like a curb, to create boundaries, to keep us out of trouble, to keep us safe. The second use of the law is more like a mirror that we stare into and we see our weakness, we see our sin, and we see we can never be good enough. This is the role of the law to say, I can't do it. I can't jump that high. I can't be who I want to be. And so I need divine intervention. I need somebody to come in and be my savior. And Paul picks up on this. I love it. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. If you want to hop over to Romans, you can join me there. I'll be there just for a little bit. Um, the Gospels, then Acts, then Romans. It's in the New Testament if you're looking for it. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Paul puts it this way. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. Rather, it is through the law that we become conscious of our sin. So instead of giving up and saying, well, why even try because I can't be perfect? Instead of giving up, Jesus says, give in. <laughs> Just give in. Give in to your need for a Savior. And it continues on, verse 22. This righteousness, or the ability to be good enough, is given through faith. Through what? Through what? Faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. For all have sinned. Who sinned? All. Who sinned? All. all. Through all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all are justified, a judicial term meaning being made right, justified freely by his grace through the redemption that comes in Jesus Christ. The good news, the gospel for you and I this morning is that we don't have to manage our sin and be good enough. The gospel, faith, is putting our trust in Jesus, who is perfect, the spotless Lamb of God, who has done the performing for us. And by his work on the cross, says, you can stop trying to be good enough. You can stop trying to perform, and you can also stop pointing out the faults in others in order to feel better about yourselves. There is no such thing as a good or bad Christian. You are either someone that has been saved by God's radical grace and put your hope and trust in him, or you haven't, and I pray that you will. Amen? Amen. There's no such thing as a bad Christian. I am either drowning in God's grace and he is the only hope that I have or I'm not. You and I, we spend so much of our lives tinkering around down here going, well, here's me and I'm walking around and I'm looking at other people and oh, I'm better than them, but I don't know. And there's these other people in the church and where would I put all these people? And Jesus says, enough already. You can just stop that because a much better picture of the Christian life than this and playing judge, I think the Christian life looks a lot more like this. Because at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. And at the foot of the cross, there's room for everyone. For the darkness that's in our world and for the darkness that's in your and my heart this morning. 
We are desperately in need for a Savior. And that's why the gospel is such good news. That's Christianity. Not tinkering around and managing our sin. You and I spend so much time comparing And whether it's comparing uh, our faith to other people, whether it's comparing my family to your family and how well you're doing and where you live and what house you're in and what car you have and what your faith life looks like and your significant other and you've got all the things that I want, we spend so much time in our life comparing, but comparison is always the thief of joy. Comparison is always the thief of joy. Take down your scales, lay them at the foot of the cross, and realize you are not good enough, but you are good enough because of what he's done on the cross. Amen? Amen. And not only that, Jesus says, there's more. There's more. Not only have I made you good, have I made you right in my sight, because when I look at you, I don't see you and your sin. I see my son who intervened on your behalf. Not only are you now good, Jesus says, I'm actually going to put a brand new heart inside of you. I love how Ezekiel puts this in the Old Testament. He said, I'm going to give you, I'm going to remove your heart of stone, God says, and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. It's like a sponge that's receptive to everything that I have for you. I'm actually going to put my spirit inside of you, God says, so that it's not like this law is some unattainable thing. I'm actually going to put it inside of your heart and give you a spirit that wants to follow me. I'm going to give you a spirit that's a get-to spirit, not a got-to spirit. And all of a sudden, we stop looking at God's law and all these commands as something that I need to do for God to be impressed with me. Instead, we start looking at these things. Here's all the things I get to do because I am loved by my Father. And we start looking at them as loving instructions from a Father. Every day in our house, I get a first-hand glimpse of law and gospel. And it has to do with our two-year-old named Caleb. Now, Caleb is at the stage where he is exploring everything, whether it puts his life at risk or not. He doesn't care. For example, Caleb is just exploring everything, and he'll, so he'll think, oh, I'll just run over here into the street, even though we live on a busy street and there's cars going by. Oh, you know what? I think I'm just going to go sprint on this sheet of ice and maybe fall and crack my head open. Why? Because I can. Oh, I'm going to help you unload the dishwasher and take out a huge butcher knife and proceed to run laps around the house with the butcher knife in my hand. Why? Because I can. And so our exchanges normally go like this. I come running behind and I say, Dearest son, as your kind and loving father, I humbly request that you cease this unfortunate behavior To which our toddler turns around and says, Oh, dear father, I am so sorry. I am so sorry to have inconvenienced you in this, because we're British somehow. I don't know what what happened there. (laughs) Yeah, right. It's more like Caleb Lee Anderson. You have to stop now. Stop, please. We'd like you to live beyond two. Stop. Please, and then on his end, it's a three or four or five minute meltdown, and then everything's fine again. And we have dozens of those a day. Because he's a pastor's kid, you know, he always responds perfectly. Caleb sees rules and laws. And as his father, I so desperately want him to see my heart. 
And I want you to hear this this morning. When it comes to God's laws for us, the boundaries he puts up for us, what his word tells us to do, there is a huge difference between love and acceptance. We have blurred those lines in our culture and said that if you're going to love someone, you have to accept their behavior. That would be a disaster of parenting. And I don't know why it'd be any different with God as our Father. We think, oh, I just have to go along with what everybody else believes and just accept everybody, because if not, it's not loving. The difference between love and acceptance is that love makes demands of the beloved for their good. The difference between love and acceptance is that love makes claims of the beloved. Why? Because that's what love is. If I let Caleb run laps around our house with a butcher knife, I would not be a loving father. And I don't know why it'd be any different in our relationship with God, but some of you still have this view of Christianity that God is saying, here, I have given you this rule book so that you can have the most lackluster, boring, joyless life possible. Good luck managing your sin. But that's not it at all. Jesus says, I'm giving you these words in Matthew chapter 5 because I want to set you free. I want to set you free. (laughs) One of the things that Caleb does when we're arguing and going back and forth is that when he wants to go do something or I don't want him to do that, he'll kind of pull away and he'll go, this way. And I go, no, this way. And he goes, no, this way. And as his father, I go, this way. That's the Beatitudes. We say, oh, I know best. I'm going this way in my life. And God says, as your loving father, I plead with you this way. This way. Jesus, Jesus, I'm not giving you these rules to beat you over the head. The truth of the matter is, I don't want you to be angry in your heart with your brother and sister because it actually sucks the joy out of you. I don't want you to commit adultery. I don't want you to look at somebody else with lust because when you do that, it takes away, it dramatically decreases your ability to be intimate with anybody because lust takes and love gives. And Jesus says, I created you to love. I'm doing this for your benefit. This way. This way. And no matter how many times we have to go back and forth, He will never stop pursuing you unless you just give in and let God come to you on his terms. God says, way more than I want your Bible study, I want you. I want your heart. I want your heart. And that really is the heartbeat of Lent, the season that we're in. And no, I don't want you to be confused and go home today and look up in the Bible and say, where's Lent? You're not going to find a thou shalt eat fish sandwiches at McDonald's for two months. It's not, it's not in there. Lent is this season that we entered into this past Wednesday on Ash Wednesday, these 40 days from Ash Wednesday leading up to Holy Saturday, the Saturday before Easter, as we, as Christians throughout the centuries, have set aside this time to prepare our hearts. And with that has come this tradition that many of you are doing, which I think is great. 
of fasting from something, giving something up, denying yourself something. And for some of you, that means that right now you're going without chocolate or caffeine or Facebook or the one true sacrifice I know is your addiction to Candy Crush. If I get one more request for that, I... <laughs> for me, I have given up something. I have given up hope that the Hawkeyes are going to make the NCAA tournament this year. <laughs> That's what I've given up for Lent. Terrible week. Absolutely terrible week. But in all seriousness, some of you are doing these things, and that is awesome, and that is great. I think there is plenty of room for self-denial in our culture rather than consumerism. We could maybe just do this as a lifestyle and not just a fun little thing you do for Lent and then quit. And so my question for you this morning, this Lenten season is, in Lent, what is your goal? What do you want your life, what do you want your heart to look like on Easter? And I pray that whatever you're doing, whether you're giving up something or not, I pray that when you're doing it or why you're not doing it, that it's not just, oh, it's a good religious thing to do, to climb the bar, or because everybody else is doing it. God simply says, where's your heart this Lent? Is it just ignoring God and being apathetic? Or is it getting sucked into religious tradition and comparison? So maybe the best question is not, what should I give up for Lent? The question is, how do I desire my life to look more like Jesus in 40 days than it does now? And whatever I need to do to make that happen, I'm going to do that. And in that sense, why don't we just keep on going? Oh, I'm going to give up Mountain Dew for 40 days. <laughs> I'm a pretty good Christian. Great. You know what? And if caffeine becomes addictive for you, but you know what? If that's getting in the way of your relationship with God, just stop it. God says, this way. And we say, Lent's done. This way. <laughs> why not just make it a lifestyle? What do I need to do for my life looks more and more like Jesus? We don't need more religious going through the motions. We don't need more self-help attempts. We need more of Jesus. We need more of Jesus. And when you get Jesus, and when you're in a relationship with him, you start to love the things that he loves. And it changes what fasting looks like for you. And we get a glimpse of God's heart in this. I love this passage, Isaiah 58. I'm just going to put it up on the screen and walk, walk us through it. But this is God's heart for the way that some of his people were fasting. Listen to this. What good is fasting, God says, when you keep on fighting and quarreling? This kind of fasting will never get you anywhere with me. You humble yourselves by, get this, going through the motions of penance and bowing your heads. Skip ahead, God says, no, this is the kind of fasting I want. Let the oppressed go free. Remove the chains that bind people. Share your food with the hungry. Give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them. Do not hide from relatives who need your help. Feed the hungry. Help those in trouble. And then your light will shine out from the darkness and, your, and the darkness around you will be as bright as noon. It's pretty hard to miss once again. God says, I want you. I want your heart, and I want it to be all in with me. Are you going to spend Lent basking and navel-gazing of your personal holiness, or are you going to get your hands messy and start loving the people that God loves? There's two different ways to spend Lent. I'm not saying don't do those things. I'm just saying never let your, your attempts and the process of personal holiness get in the way of serving and loving the people that God has put around you 
right now. It's not an either or. It's both. It's both. One of the commentators I was reading, I was reading an article about Lent. <laughs> I thought it was kind of funny, but kind of convicting all at the same time, too. He said this. God says, um, I didn't ask you to just give up coffee. I asked you to surrender your life. Boy, that just kind of cuts to the heart of it, doesn't it? It's great. It's awesome. How's your heart? What if this Lent, instead of just giving something up, you replace it with something more beautiful, more compassionate? What good is pulling out weeds if you're not going to plant anything in its place? Pulling out weeds with not planting something more beautiful just means what? More weeds. What's your plan for Lent? What's your plan? For us, this meant taking a hard look at who we were as a church several years back, and myself and a couple other people were sitting in the principal's office at Hubble, and some of you have heard this story before, some of you haven't. And we said, what do you need here at Hubble most of all? Because we don't want to just be here and worshiping and going through the religious motions. We want to do something about it. And he said, we need mentors. This is a fatherless generation coming up. This is a fatherless city. And John, 50% of the kids in this school don't have a father in the home. And of those that do, they're probably emotionally checked out. These kids are desperate for mentoring. And so we did. Because there came a certain point where we would come into Hubble every single week and go through the motions and worship and we're standing and we're praying for God to meet the needs in the city and it gets to a point where why don't we just be the answer to our own prayers and stop singing about it and, and praying about it and fasting about it. Let's just go do it. That's our worship. A couple years later, we said, God, we're looking around the city. All of us are so blessed to be able to come here and have a loving church community where we can come and worship and be inspired every week. Who doesn't have that opportunity? People that are homeless, people living under bridges, people in shelters. There was over 70 people here this morning from six different shelters here in Des Moines from our Breakfast Club program. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. So we started looking around, and we did that again this year. We said, there are people dying of hunger, not only around the world, but there are people starving right here in Des Moines. So you know what? This is not a sacred space in the sense that we can't just jack these chairs out of here, get them out, and let's package some meals right here in our sanctuary. I can't just come in here and sing songs and worship every week. This is a sending center. This is a place of mission. It's not a museum for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. It's a place where we can come and get dirty, and it's going to get dusty, and it's going to get messy. And that's the point. Replace whatever you're taking out with something more beautiful. We've been doing that, and I think a great idea of this is a story I heard about a woman named Joy, who you've probably never heard of, but she is making a huge impact. And as you watch her story, I want to encourage you. What would it look like for you to do something like that here? Let's take a look. This is the North Highlands area, just outside Sacramento. This used to be a very thriving area, springing from, mostly from McClellan Air Force Base. The base closed, and since the closure, the whole of the community economically was impacted because all the jobs left. 
I have been living in the vicinity of this area for close to 20 years. I was part of a ministry, but felt that there was more we could do to invest ourselves in the community around us. We looked around and noticed that every direction we looked in, there was an apartment complex. I felt I heard the Lord say, this is the place and these are the people. When we came here, Logan Park was riddled with crime, a lot of gang violence, child prostitution. There was a darkness different than the nighttime. I guess my preference is to be quiet, sitting at home, reading a book, but the needs of others pulls me out of myself. Some of the needs of the community uh, here at Logan Park uh, include the basic needs of food and clothing. So once every week, we give our groceries, bags of groceries, to everybody who comes, anyone who comes. And there were people who came by like maybe Christmas, everybody wants to come and be a blessing around holidays. But they were just here and gone. Never a face, never a hand, never a heart that stayed. For us, the success is in being here. This is a life investment because Christ invested his life for us. Not from afar, but up close, and personal. He got into the mess with us. I was watching that video this week and that comment that she made keeps ringing in my heart. The needs of others pull me outside of myself. The needs of others pull me outside of myself. Are you going to spend Lent navel-gazing and trying to be good enough? Or are you going to let God's grace be good enough and be the catalyst to propel you into mission with him? Joy realized, I love this statement. She heard God say, this is the place, these are the people. This is the place, these are the people, and I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to stay. This is the place, and these are the people. May that be our heart as a church as well. God calls out to us through the prophet Isaiah, yes, do your fasting, but replace it with something much more beautiful. If he's speaking to you, if he's bringing ideas to mind, I'd encourage you, take out the back of your bulletin, jot some of these things down right now. I don't know what he's calling you to do, but maybe it's signing up for the meal packaging event right now here today. Go back there right into the lobby and sign up for it today. Don't wait. Maybe it's investing in your marriage and, and your marriage is kind of plateaued. Maybe it's time to invest in your marriage and you as the man lead and ask your wife, we're going to go to the marriage retreat. And we're going to spend some quality time together. Get signed up for that today. Maybe it's looking at that whole list of groups and teams and activities on the back of your bulletin every single week and saying, oh, they're for other people. They're for those Christians. They're for you. You're missing it. 
Don't miss the joy. Today is the day. Maybe it's the Women's Coffee Connect. Maybe it's time to get outside of yourself, out of your isolation, and meet some other people here and get connected in community. If that's you today, I'm just going to be up here after worship, and a few of our staff will be up here hanging out, and we would love to talk with you more about that and get you connected. Whether you need prayer or whether God's laid something on your heart. The posture of Lent is saying, God, here's my heart. I am all in for you. Not just living my own private holy life in isolation, but to live for the sake of others. God, help me get outside of myself this Lent and join you in your mission. Here's my heart, Lord. Here's my heart. I am all in for you.